This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our show, Coast to Coast. It's November 17th, 2005. I'm Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And Bob? I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, both of which are available through the URL LegalLine.com. In our show from last week on Viox, uh, the recap, given Merck's uh, victory, is now up on the Legal Talk Network, and you can find that at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So Bob, what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about uh, the Patriot Act and national security letters. Uh, the Patriot Act, of course, was enacted by Congress on October 26, 2001, at the request of President Bush. Uh, Congress passed the Patriot Act shortly after the September 11th terrorist attacks, to give federal law enforcement officers and intelligence agencies more more muscle in the fight against terror. Uh, Fourteen provisions of the act were set to sunset on December 31st, unless renewed by Congress uh, and uh, approved by the president. Uh, so that's been a, a topic of debate this week uh, uh, in Congress, and and uh, been a lot of reporting and discussion, uh, in part uh, precipitated by a, a Washington Post article this weekend on national security letters. Uh, in-depth report on on uh, those which suggested there are more than 30,000 a year of national security letters being issued. So the sponsors of the act say the uh, act was needed to address a situation that had not existed before, but the presence of terrorists within national borders and the need to apprehend and prosecute them uh, before rather than after they've acted. Right. Well, Bob, opponents of this act, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union, have said that the act has undone previous checks on civil liberty abuses of the past and unnecessarily endangers privacy and discourages free speech. Uh, the government has the ability to intercept all messages that are relevant to ongoing criminal investigation, which is a much lower standard than the previous one where a crime had to have been committed. Uh, the Act allows the guidelines to apply to all surveillance cases, not just those of uh, suspected terrorists. This week, the uh, House and Senate negotiators struck a tentative deal uh, on the expiring provisions of the Patriot Act that would, to some extent, curb FBI subpoena power and require the Justice Department to more fully report uh, its secret requests for information about uh, ordinary people. So today we are thrilled to have as our guests uh, on Coast to Coast a couple of people who are very much involved in this. First, we'd like to introduce Colleen Rowley. Uh, Colleen, uh, from the time she was 11 years old, says that she was determined that she would someday become an FBI agent. Uh, she did that, and in 2002 she exposed lapses uh, in the investigation of suspected al-Qaeda operative Zacharias Moussaoui and also testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee about some of the endemic problems faced by the FBI and the intelligence community. In April 2003, following an unsuccessful attempt to warn the director and other administration officials about the dangers of launching the invasion of Iraq, she stepped down from her legal position and returned to being an FBI special agent. Uh, she had also spoken out at that point uh, about uh, poten potential excessive use of uh, national security 
letters. In 2004, uh, Ms. Rowley retired from the FBI and is presently a candidate for a Democratic candidate for Congress in the state of Minnesota and uh, speaks publicly on ethical decision-making and balancing civil liberties with the need for investi- effective investigation. Welcome to the show, Colleen, and I'm sorry for my tongue twisting there. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, it is my... I, I come from the vantage point of wanting to see it being done correctly so that, um, obviously, law enforcement and intelligence agencies are able to better home in on the true terrorists and yet not uh, make this pendulum go so far in the other direction from over-complacency now to over-aggressiveness that we see pendulums swinging wildly back and forth, and then, uh, you know, which, which is going to, in the long term, not help the cause at all. Colleen, talking about pendulums, we need to pause for a minute and introduce our next guest, who's attorney Jamil Jaffer. He's an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. He's litigated several significant cases involving government secrecy and national security. He's currently counsel to the plaintiffs in Doe v. Gonzalez, which is a constitutional challenge to the FBI's authority to issue national security letters in foreign intelligence and terrorism investigations. The district court struck down the National Security Letter Statute in September 2004. Mr. Jaffrey recently defended the district court's decision in argument before the Second Circuit. He's also counsel to the plaintiffs in MCA of Ann Arbor versus Ashcroft, which is a challenge to Section 215 of the Patriot Act, another controversial surveillance authority. Finally, he's counsel to the plaintiffs in ACLU versus Department of Defense, which is litigation under the Freedom of Information Act, resulting in the release of thousands of documents concerning the interrogation, alleged abuse, and torture of prisoners held by the United States in Iraq, Afghanistan, and at Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. Welcome to the show, Jamil. Thank you. Colleen, let's come back to the point you were just making. I mean, you talked about the uh, your interest in balancing civil liberties uh, with with the need for uh, law enforcement to be able to conduct effective investigation. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and your perspective on, on, on whether the Patriot Act does that or not. Well, as a starting place, uh, you mentioned uh, Barton Gelman's article, Washington Post article, about the kind of exposing the extent now that uh, national security letters have gone to, the numbers. And that's a perfect example. It's just, of course, one small thing, but it shows that that uh, it's taken four years, uh, of course, for people to even understand that this was an issue. And unfortunately, if people, if the public does not know the extent of, of, of maybe some privacy that they're given, giving up in the so-called war on terrorism, it's almost inevitable that we are going to have these pendulums. Because when the news comes out, for instance, of getting uh, extensive records, people are, are um, you know, upset about it or they... They object to it, and it would, seems like it would be a wiser thing to be more educating the public as we go along on this process. And, and whose responsibility should that be to do that? Well, I think actually government officials should have l- taken the more long-sighted approach and been more forthcoming. Ashcroft was, uh, of course, on the opposite end of the spectrum. He was so secretive that it actually, I think, hurt the cause. And, and many officials, even since Ashcroft have left, have kind of taken the view, well, what the public doesn't know won't hurt them. And a lot of the, uh, again, I always say so-called war on terrorism because I don't like the term, but the, uh, a lot of this is uh, cloaked with secrecy. 
And in the long-term view of things, it's not going to be helpful because when people do learn uh, the extent that they may have given up some privacy rights, and perhaps in some cases there, there could even be uh, potentially true civil liberties abuses, then we will just have a, a, a pendulum that swings from allowing uh, the FBI to gather these records or allowing the FBI to engage in intrusive in investigations. And the pendulum will swing back then to where it was at up earlier points where, they, where the FBI was thwarted and unable to gain access to records. I think Colleen is, is absolutely right about the secrecy surrounding these provisions. One of the things that happened very early on, um, almost immediately after the Patriot Act was enacted, is that um, the public interest organizations, including the ACLU, filed Freedom of Information Act litigation to try to get more information about how the FBI was implementing these new surveillance authorities and how these authorities were being used. And that the way that the Justice Department, which was then being run by Attorney General Ashcroft, responded to the Freedom of Information Act request was essentially to stonewall it, uh, to refuse to release uh, virtually any information about how the FBI was using those provisions. Ironically, one of the few things that we did get through that litigation was uh, this blacked-out list of uh, national security letters that had been issued over a 14-month period right after the Patriot Act was enacted. And that list, although it was blacked out, was six pages long. And so even at that time, there was some evidence that uh, the FBI was using this provision very, very aggressively. You have that uh, up on your website. I it's know. on our it's website, that's right. ACLU.org slash NSA, I think, is where you can find it. Slash NSL, right. NSL, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, going back to, I think it's some indication that the, one of the sources, at least for the Gelman article, was a former FBI legal official. And even he, um, he had some, he had a pretty uh, big role in drafting some of the provisions of the Patriot Act, and then some of the, some of the national security uh, letter provisions. And even he was quite surprised to see the extent that it has uh, been carried. Is your fear just the extent, or is it the actual reach into people's lives? Well, you know what? I think people did appreciate the when you delegated. What you did is you delegated down the authority to sign these letters. That's essentially what it was, and I I actually agree with that. I think that the um, we should delegate actually down to lower levels. If you look at how uh, terrorists are actually caught, in many cases it is the the lowly customs inspector on the border. It could be a couple of agents in Minneapolis. So I think it is actually a good thing to delegate down the authority. But what you had to do at the same time is also include ways to keep judiciousness in the process. Because even on a practical level, I know the ACLU will talk, a lot of people talk about the legalities here and the legal thresholds, but even on the practical level, if you have no way of controlling the flood of data into database systems, you make it very uh, difficult for later analysts to figure out what they even have. One of the one of the scary things, I guess, or one of the Orwellian things about the national security letters uh, that strikes me is is the fact that uh, one who receives one of these letters basically can't tell anybody they've received it, uh, and so there it, 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 there's no way of of making the public aware that this is happening, except in a few cases where some people have kind of bravely stepped uh, forth and 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 Jamil, I guess that's the litigation that you're involved in, uh, right? But I, I think that the one one important thing to note there is that these national security letters have been around in, in some form 
since, uh, well, the one that, that we're challenging right now has been around since 1986, but other national security letter provisions have been around even longer. It's true that the Patriot Act dramatically expanded the FBI's ability to use these things, but they've been around for a long time. And yet no legal challenge has ever been filed to any national security letter until this past year. And I think that that's in part because of that gag provision that prevents people who receive these things from talking to anyone else about it. And talking to anyone else means you can't even talk to a lawyer. If you read that, that language literally, which is the way that most people who receive these things actually do read it, um, it, means that, uh, it means that you can't talk to a lawyer. So one result is uh, judges don't um, oversee the FBI's use of this provision. And so Colleen is right on that, too. But one of the problems here is that it's not so much that the FBI is issuing these things, but that they're issuing these things unilaterally in the dark, that there's nobody looking over their shoulder to see, just to make sure that they're being used in the way that they're meant to be used, uh, and not to gather you know, information about ordinary innocent people who have no connection at all uh, to terrorism or, um, or, or foreign intelligence activities. Jamil, with the ACLU, you've put together a pretty unlikely coalition of people that have agreed to challenge this. You want to tell us about that? Well, we, we've got, um, so on the legislative side, in trying to, to fix the law, we've got a lot of conservative organizations, libertarian organizations, um, and uh, we've got Bob Barr, who is obviously a former Republican um, a former Republican legislator. We've got all kinds of people who are um, not always on the ACLU side on these kinds of issues, but there really is a concern, I think, across the political spectrum about the implications for uh, the implications of the NSL provisions and other surveillance provisions um, for individual privacy. And individual privacy is something that um, many people believe is not. Uh, protected enough by the Constitution. And so it falls to the legislature to decide exactly how much protection should be provided. Should the government be able to search a person's home without telling them? Should the government be able to gather information about people who are not suspected of having done anything wrong? Those kinds of questions are more and more questions that Congress is deciding and rather than the courts. And whether you think that's a good or bad thing, you know, it, it's a question that we need to answer. Like where should that line be drawn? And that line is something that both conservatives and liberals care a lot about. I've always wondered whether the Congress's cry for against activist judges really means uh, we just want to be the ones who are activists. Right. Well, that, that might be true. I, I don't know. Uh, in this particular area, I think we wish that Congress were a little more active in protecting, uh, protecting privacy rights. Well, Colleen, there's a, an old saw that's used, I think, in the FBI that says, if you don't have anything to fear, what's the problem with the investigation? Well, uh, I think many people, the so-called uh, soccer moms or security moms, uh, kind of reiterated that argument. And the reason is because they said, well, I wouldn't care if you know my computer or my house was searched because I have nothing to hide. But when uh, people found out that their hotel records in Las Vegas, uh, huge numbers of people were sought by the FBI, uh, then they saw that it was actually them and not, you know, Mideastern males or Muslims, Muslims or, or some other group, because many people in their own heads say, well, it's still it's going to be others. It won't be me. Um, I think there are ways that we can tailor some of these authorities, and we can still allow the FBI to be fairly aggressive. We just need to build in some mechanisms to make it judicious and obviously certainly to 
prevent any true uh, uh, civil liberties abuse, like use for a political purpose or something like that. There are ways of doing this. We just have to really debate it more openly. And we, and as Jamel uh, was saying, that is that's probably half the problem, is that people have actually been afraid to even talk about these issues because it's been so cloaked in secrecy. Well, do I, mean, I hear whatever what you're think. saying that you uh, consider the the compromise worked out in, in Congress? Uh, not satisfactory in addressing these concerns? Who are you asking? Colleen, you, I'm sorry. Oh, um, you know, I'm not so conversant. It looks like the, the compromise worked out is going to extend uh, the 15 provisions of the Patriot Act, uh, and two of them would be extended for seven, for seven years, and the rest would be uh, completely extended. I, I think we need secrecy up to a certain point. I think we need secrecy on the identities of people whose records are sought. Certainly that can't be relayed to the public. So if someone does get a request like this, but what we can give for further oversight, numbers, we can categorize these uh, letters. We can give all of that to independent oversight groups such as Congress. And a lot of this has been fought tooth and nail by the agencies doing them, I think, in a very short-sighted way, thinking, well, what, what they don't know won't hurt them. And I think, ultimately, that's not a good idea. Jamil, there are, say, 36,000 of these national security letters out there, but there are 290 million people in the United States. It doesn't sound like an abuse to me. Well, you know, one of the things you have to realize is that each of those national security letters can gather the information of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. As Colleen mentioned, there was one uh, incident in Las Vegas where uh, the FBI served national security letters, apparently, and gathered information about 300,000 different people. So the 30,000 number, um, I actually think that's quite alarming in itself, even if there were you know, just 30,000 people, that's quite a lot of people. I don't think that anyone would contend that there are 30,000 terrorists living inside the United States. That's 30,000 a year, right? 30,000 a year, exactly. But even that, I think, understates the, the significance of the issue here because each of those 30,000 actually stands for a much bigger number. Well, um, that's and that's a result of the Patriot Act because it's the Patriot Act that allowed the FBI to issue these things uh, without showing individualized suspicion. It used to be that the FBI had to show some reason to believe that the, that the person whose records were being obtained was uh, himself or herself a terrorist or a foreign spy. Not probable cause, but some reason to believe. Um, that, that provision is now gone. There's no longer any requirement that the FBI have individualized suspicion. Instead, the FBI can gather anyone's records so long as the FBI believes that the records are relevant to an ongoing investigation. And that change, even though it's a very minor wording change, has resulted, I think, in, a, in, a, in a, an explosion in the use of these, these national security letters. You know, are you trying to have these laws declared unconstitutional, or what remedy are you seeking? That's right. We're, we're, we're trying to have the laws declared unconstitutional as currently drafted. Now, we wouldn't be opposed to a narrower provision that allowed the FBI to get records related to actual terrorists and actual spies. We think that's precisely what the FBI should be doing. The concern is that the FBI is using these laws and that the laws are designed to be used much, much more broadly than that. Well, the discovery laws here in California are simply allow investigation into any relevant evidence. The standard doesn't sound much different for national security letters. Well, the concern with so that the argument that the government has made from the outset is that these are like grand jury subpoenas, and grand jury subpoenas have a relevant standard as well. So why not give them to the FBI in the same way? But the, what you have to recognize first is that 
these national security letters aren't issued like grand jury subpoenas. There's nothing in the national security letter that says you can go to a court and challenge this. There's nothing that says uh, you can talk to a lawyer about this. In fact, there's language in the national security letter that says uh, no person shall disclose to any other person that uh, the FBI has sought or obtained information under this provision. And so if you didn't have that gag language, then the national security letter would be much less objectionable. I'm not sure that it would be perfect, but it would be much, much less objectionable. The problem right now is the secrecy that surrounds these things. If you're going to have that kind of secrecy, then it's very important that the letters be limited to cases where you're dealing with actual terrorists and not when you're dealing with ordinary innocent people um, who have no connection whatsoever to criminal activity of any kind. Well, Jamil, hang on to that thought for a moment. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll wrap up our discussion and get some final thoughts from our guests. We'll be right back. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to the Coast to Coast radio program, internet radio program on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. We're back with our guests. Colleen Raleigh, a former FBI agent and now candidate for Congress in Minnesota, and Attorney Jamil Jaffer, attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, I'd like to just get, uh, uh, we've got a couple minutes left, and I'd just like to get some final thoughts. I wonder, Colleen, if I could just start with you. I, I, you've, you've seemed to have uh, now carried this label of, of FBI whistleblower wherever you go. I don't, I'm not sure what you think of that label, but you were also... Uh, Time, one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year in 2002. You're now a candidate for Congress. How do you 
How do you uh, think the country should be approaching these issues of, of investigation and privacy? Well, it's critical that it be done right, and it's uh, critical that a debate occur as to how we can do this. In a, it's it certainly uh, could stand improvement from what we are doing right now, and I think the secrecy has actually hindered some of uh, the ability to do this even in a better way. But these authorities were developed in the cold as an outgrowth of the Cold War with communism, and they were never really uh, thought about so much as they apply to the terrorists. Uh, uh, and that's something we have got to debate, and we've, we can do it right if we just get there. So you think the rules need to be changed to, to somewhat, uh, from, from the Cold War to uh, fighting terrorism or different things? Yeah, they, you know, there are answers and solutions to doing this and balancing these things and actually doing them more judiciously. It's just that we've got to start talking about it openly. We've got to get uh, views from different uh, standpoints. And, and part of the problem lies in the fact that we went from the spy world and now we're in this terrorist world, and these things didn't fit. Uh, we have perpetual secrecy, for example. That applied pretty well for spies, but it does not work very well with terrorism. For, this is a question for both of you to, to jump in on, but what if national security letters were had to run through the court system first and get a sign-off on a, from a judge just like a warrant would? I think that would be great. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I think that to the FBI, one of the valuable things here is that they don't have to get a sign-off from a judge beforehand. Um, and even that would be fine if people knew that they could challenge these things after the fact. But the problem is that people don't know that, and in fact, the FBI has been, uh, or the Justice Department has been very cagey about whether they actually think people can challenge these things or not, and the result is that nobody does challenge them. And so there really is no, there's effectively no judicial review, and the two cases that we brought are the two, the first two cases in 30 years, uh, and that's just, uh, that's inexcusable. I mean, these things have been, have been issued, like I said, for the last 30 years, and it, it's crazy that nobody has... Uh, Nobody has challenged one of these until now. Colleen, where do you strike the balance between unfettered investigation and judicial review? Well, I actually would not be in favor of having to get a judge's approval for a national security letter. Uh, we don't for a grand jury subpoenas, but I am in favor of uh, making these a little more you know, narrowly circumscribed. The standard used to be specific and articulable facts. That was the, how they iterated it. And if they had that standard and yet still were able to delegate down perhaps to the field office level and then had oversight to ensure that these numbers were kept, in, you know, we had some checks and balances in the system, I think that that would maybe be the best of all worlds. You don't um, want to, to make it so difficult that it's impossible to prevent an act of terrorism. On the other hand, you certainly don't want these things to go crazy. Now, what we've got going to is a fear factor in the country, and you overlay that kind of a fear factor panic that it, uh, goes along with orange alerts, and now you really do have people that are going you know, crazy on getting so many records. Well, at this point, Colleen, thanks very much. That's a really great point. Uh, it's certainly something to give some thought to, and I think it's going to provide some stimulating discussion among our listeners. Uh, at this point, we'd like to thank Colleen Rowley. Uh, you can find about uh, more about Colleen at ColleenRowley.org. It's R-O-W-L-E-Y, and Colleen is C-O-L-E-E-N. And Jamil Jaffer from the ACLU. We'd like to thank both of our guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Well, Bob, 
uh, this is the point that we are going to uh, hear a little bit of music before we start talking about the blogosphere's uh, Arctic stories. Hear ye, hear ye, now from the legal blogosphere, this week's legal nuggets, insights, and worthy trivia, you be the judge. Oh, I'm laughing because I'm cueing the studio um, instead of them cueing me. But, Bob, what about the blogosphere? You're supposed to talk about the first blogosphere story that, that's out there for, for today. Well, I guess, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the big uh, buzz of the blogosphere for the week was the, uh, the unmasking of the Article 3 groupie. Uh, you know, uh, I think Monica Bay on her blog, The Common School, referred to uh, this as sort of the desperate housewives week uh, in illegal blogosphere. Uh, it, it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of it all, but uh, it certainly uh, gave us something to buzz about. What, was it you that predicted that his career is now over? Well, I think I think everybody's been predicting that. Uh, one wonders. I know his website is no longer up, uh, it, but it was interesting because it it also uh, came in a in a week when uh, uh, Monica on her her blog also. Uh, published a, a note from Ross Conner, who's a very highly regarded uh, legal technology consultant and lawyer and writer, uh, CLE provider, who, who kind of blasted the uh, legal blogosphere uh, as being, and I have, I have this in front of me, he said, it, it's elitist, class-structured, narrow-minded, and exclusionary. Uh, and uh, his, he, he made some, some interesting points, and, and it is funny that the, the, the blogosphere sometimes tends to be a, a little bit of a vanity press, and, and this whole uh, this whole to-do over the Article Three groupie, I think, uh, helped demonstrate that. It did, but the uh, New Yorker was the one that actually broke the story. Right. Right, and then it got picked up in the article. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily an issue for, well, it is an issue for the legal blogosphere, but uh, certainly interesting that a print medium broke it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the rest, the other legal blogosphere story for this week seems to be the continuing rounds that Judge Justice Alito is making and actually apparently making friends in Congress and looks like he's doing a fairly good job of wrapping up his nomination. Oh, he's making friends, but even as more and more questions keep uh, emerging about his record, I mean, everybody's been looking this week at at the job application that he filed with the Justice Department in which he questioned uh, several uh, aspects of established precedent uh, you know, we can say now that that was just a job application, but uh, it was revealing. Right. I saw one uh, blog entry that said, I, I wish I could be nominated for the Supreme Court so I could just easily dismiss things that happened to me when I was 20. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Uh, we'd like to thank our listeners for listening to Coast to Coast. It'll be up on the Legal Talk Network. Yeah, can we also just remind people that links to some of the people and, uh, and websites we've talked about are up on LegalTalkNetwork.com. Thanks, Bob. See you next week. Okay. Talk to you next week, Craig. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.